The reading is Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. The supremacy of the Son of God. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of all your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Thank you. Kids would pay attention then, wouldn't they? So, anyone got a favourite hymn or a favourite worship song? Anyone? Yeah, go on. Great is thy faithfulness. That's one of mine. It's one of my go-to worship songs. Great is thy faithfulness. Go on. And can it be? Excellent. Right at the back, you have to be loud for me. Amazing grace. These are great hymns. Thine be the glory. Tempted to sing now. Screw the sermon. Let's just sing some hymns. This is good stuff. Great theology. You'll be working all morning at this rate, Hannah. Any more for any more? Go on. My sweet Lord. Old school. I like it. Nice. Any more for any more? No. Well, that's okay. Uh, while I'm asking you about hymns, hymns are really powerful things, are they? I don't know about you. I used to be, for a while, I was a chaplain in a hospice. Uh, and one of the things about being a hospice chaplain was um, often people didn't have much to say to you, particularly if they were at the end of their lives. And you weren't always there, actually, for the person who was about to die. They were usually usually either asleep or if they were awake. They're in fine fettle. Most people at the end of their lives have come to terms with things. You were often there for the sake of the family gathered around them who didn't know what to say and what to do. And so sometimes you spend your time talking with a family member while someone who was uh, in their last days might be asleep and you might start to pray. And they may not have said a word for weeks or days or months. And uh, part way through, you start to pray, and the Lord's Prayer is a favourite. As you pray the Lord's Prayer, particularly in the traditional version, you'd suddenly notice someone who hadn't said anything for days, weeks, months, their lips would start to move, and they'd join in. Our Father in heaven, 
who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. And you could see it. And this would also happen if you gathered around and started to sing a hymn, particularly some of those old favorites that someone had known all their life. They may not say a word. It might be for days, weeks, months, and then suddenly, amazing grace. And you can see the lips starting to move. Something deep inside of them was reconnecting with what was going on outside, gathered around them. There's something about hymns, about worship songs, they connect with us on a deeper level than just the things we might say out loud, just the words we might read off a screen, or in fact, possibly even the words you read in scripture. You might be super holy and read your Bible every day. God bless you, well done. But I wonder how easy you find it to remember the things you've read compared to, say, the latest uh, worship song you've listened to in the car or the latest thing that we've been singing at Christchurch that just comes back again and again with much more ease of recall than perhaps some of the words you read. Singing has been a, a part of the Christian tradition from the earliest days. When Christians gathered together uh, for worship, we copied the synagogue tradition of the Jewish tradition for obvious reasons. The gaffer was Jewish, so we do what he did. And because he gathered in a community in a synagogue, that's what early, the earliest Christians did. And there were four things Christians always did when they gathered together. They read scripture, which was principally the Old Testament, because... Anyone know? There wasn't a New Testament. It hadn't been written yet. Top marks. There's no prizes, but well done. Because there wasn't a New Testament, so they read the Old Testament together. Uh, they prayed together. Always a good idea. They ate together, which we are going to do. It's not exactly a gourmet meal, but it's not the substance of the food that counts. It's what the, work the Holy Spirit is up to. But they ate together, and they sang together. And in fact, Jesus himself did it. The night that he was betrayed at supper with his friends, as Anna's going to pray in a little while, if you follow that narrative in the Gospels, right at the end, before he goes out to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, it says, they sang a hymn together, and then they departed for Gethsemane. Because that was the Christian tradition that we inherited from, or has always been the Christian tradition, that we inherited from our Jewish brothers and sisters. You gather, you eat, you read, you pray, you sing, and then you get on with your daily rhythms and patterns. And of course, the earliest Christians did that every single day, every single morning. Not an hour a week, but every single morning, usually at 6 a.m. Some of you are looking at me wondering what 6 a.m. is. You've heard of 6 p.m., but 6 a.m., a bit early, yes. And Anna is hovering at the back. If anyone wants one of the, the notebooks for, to, for this sermon series, because you want to follow it and make notes on my amazing sermon, obviously, um, then if you wave at her, she will give you one of those as we go. Um, I'm just going to keep going otherwise. So Christians gathered and they sang, and it was one of the ways that we learned theology. And in fact, some of those amazing hymns that we just referenced, they're rich with theology. Some of the earliest Christian hymn writers, people like uh, the Wesleys, who we know about, um, the founder of Methodism, they wrote hymns that were rich with theology. Loads of it. And can it be is a great question. But the answer is full of scripture, it's full of theology about why Jesus had to die, what the resurrection achieves, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued? We learn about ourselves, we learn about God, we learn about the gospel as we sing. 
What is happening? Why am I telling you this? Have I lost the plot? Not today. Possibly other times, but not today. That wonderful text that we've just heard read to us so brilliantly by Clive from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23, is a hymn. It's one of three examples of a hymn, or maybe, forgive me if you're allergic to the L word, but maybe even a bit of liturgy from the earliest days of the church. You see, at Colossians 1, 15 to 23, John 1, that we often hear at Christmas, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That passage that often is only read at Christmas, verses 1 to 14. And Philippians chapter 2, uh, have this mind in yourselves that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he had equality with God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself and took on the form of a slave. Those three passages are reckoned by most Bible scholars to be hymns or bits of liturgy probably used by the earliest Christians in a communion service. And you can sort of hear it if you read Colossians chapter 1 carefully. If you haven't had a chance to read it all the way through yet for this series, let me encourage you, it's only a few chapters, you could do a chapter a day for the rest of this week and you'll be well up to speed by next Sunday. Colossians 1, Paul begins with his greeting, as you heard from Anna last week. He tells the Colossian Christians he's praying for them. And he gets the kind of the crescendo of his prayer in verse 14, where he says, you have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's son. This is amazing news. Brilliant news. And if you miss out the bit that we've just read, the letter carries on quite happily. I now rejoice in suffering for your sake. Uh, and in my flesh, I'm completing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. And so most scholars, as they read Colossians 1, they found themselves thinking, what are these eight verses doing? They kind of arrive as a bit of an interruption in the flow of the chapter which is about Paul's prayer of thanksgiving, the good news that they've been transferred from darkness to light, and then Paul's joyful suffering for their sake. That's how the chapter flows. And in the middle, you've got these eight verses that just sort of arrive where there's this kind of hymn to Jesus. Um, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. In him, all things in heaven and on earth were created, things invisible and visible, thrones, dominions, rulers, powers, all things exists because of him, created by him and through him and for him. And you find yourself thinking as you read Colossians 1, well, that's brilliant, Paul, but it's a bit of an aside, isn't it? It's not what, that wasn't the focus of the first 15 verses. Why have we ended up here? And it looks like the answer is to do with the, the context in which the Colossian Christians were living. So let me say something briefly then about some of what Anna said last week. So I'm just going to repeat her brilliance. It's kind of what husbands are for, really, isn't it? And, um, and then I'll say something about this passage. So last week, Anna told us that um, the Colossae had been, in the 4th century BC, had been a powerhouse of a city. Incredibly important. Uh, one of the few royal cities where the imperial family would stay when they were traveling. It was enormous. In fact, some people have wondered if it was called Colossi because it was colossal, huge, powerful, wealthy. And for several hundred years, it had existed um, in, in uh, Asia Minor, in modern day Turkey, with a real significant status. 
But in about the previous 100 years prior to Paul writing, its uh, status took a turn for the worse, a bit like some of those big northern industrial cities that you might know even in our country. Think of Liverpool, which 100 years ago was a massively important port and trading center. Uh, and certainly when I was growing up in the 80s, it had taken a real dive in terms of its significance. Things were closing down. People were withdrawing. Its fortunes has changed. And with it, uh, its reputation changed. Well, Colossae was a bit like that. And at the time of Paul's letter, it was not exactly a dive, but it was certainly not a very important place anymore. And there was a, quite a, a lot of dispute going on about how to turn around the fortunes of the city. And three particular factions were fighting one another. Uh, the first faction was the sort of pointy-headed, clever people. You've met them, right? The brainy ones, often a bit younger, known as the Epicureans. And I won't say too much about this because there are others coming after me with greater things to say. But the Epicureans were intellectuals, philosophers. And so some were saying, if you want to fix the fortunes of the day, forget everybody else. Give it to the brainiacs, the clever ones, the philosophers. They will be able to fix the future fortunes of our town, our city. We trust them. Everything will be okay. One of the other factions was, um, uh, well, you, let me see, try this out on you, see if you've heard of these people. It used to be brilliant round here in the good old days, and now it's a mess. Have you met those people? You never, ever meet them in church. Ever. Honest. Um, certainly not question. You might meet them in other churches, I suppose, but not here. It, it used to be brilliant round here, and now it's gone to pot. So if we want to fix things, what do we have to do? We have to go back to the good old days. Don't allow the pointy-headed intellectuals with all the brains and no nous to fix things. They won't know what to do. Go back to the way it used to be when we were big and powerful and important. And let's hand it over to those who remember the old magic. Those who are rooted in the past. They will help us. And then you had a kind of third faction. Who were the wool merchants, the traders, the wealthy businessmen, mostly, and women. Colossae was very famous for its wool trade and for its, um, for its dyeing industry, dyeing material, not death. Um, and uh, that meant the most powerful people in that place were the merchants. Now, if you want to fix the fortunes of a city that once was great and is now not, Surely it makes sense, doesn't it? Find the, find the people with the moolah, find the rich people. They've made a, a success of it in the midst of the mess. They, because we all know this works, give rich people more power and authority and responsibility. And of course, it trickles down to the poorest, <coughs> doesn't it? When they're not having parties in Downing Street. That's what happens. It trickles down to the poorest and most insignificant. That's how it works. We know. And so this city of Colossae was divided between uh, those who thought the young and intelligent intellectuals, the philosophers, the up-and-coming, let them have a shot of leading. Those who thought, no, we have to go back to the good old days, the way things used to be, so let's turn back to the old practices, and particularly the ritual practices of our culture and tradition. And those who are saying, let's trust the businessmen. They've made, made money out of the situation we're in. They must be reliable and trustworthy. And so Colossae was a bit of a hotbed of debate. How do we fix the future? How do we move forward? Well, we don't know. We're struggling to figure it all out. Some people think the young, some people think the old, some people think the rich and the powerful. But we need something to help us move forward. 
And in the midst of that, Paul, never having met these, Christian community, these Christians in this community, writes to the church 25 years after the ascension, probably, so hardly any time at all, really, fledgling community, and he says to them, if you want to know how to grow up and go forward as a community, don't get caught up in the disagreements and the, dis- and, and the, um, the dissent within the town that you live in. Remember this. You have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, and so now you must live as if Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? Because he is. And that, if you like, is the definition of the Christian life. We don't get caught up in the things that will distract us from the lordship of Christ because we have something to offer to the world in which we live in that is constantly spinning and tizzing trying to fix itself. And so Paul quotes these words of this hymn, this bit of liturgy, almost as if he's saying to them, look, you know this. You sing it and you say it every single week. You know that Jesus is Lord. You know that all things were made through him and by him and for him. You know that he is invested and interested in the way and the fortunes of the city that you live in. Because it says all things have been reconciled to God through him. He's not only interested in some, he's interested in everybody. So don't get distracted by panic and fear and worry. We used to be significant and now we're not. What does our future hold? Who will help us? Who should we trust? Are the powerful trustworthy? Are the wealthy trustworthy? Are the clever clogs trustworthy? Are those who want to draw us back to our traditions and culture? How do we fix this? And Paul says, don't look around, look up. Don't look around and try and think we can do this on our own. Look up. And it's almost as if he quotes from a hymn or a bit of liturgy that they would know because he wants to remind them You know this already. So why have you forgotten? What has distracted you from the good news of the gospel? Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. In him, all things in heaven and on earth were created. The things that are visible and the things that are invisible. All things Every worry or concern, every town or city, every bit of politics, every bit of uh, economics, education, every fear that you carry, all things are his concern. Sometimes we live as if church is the place we come to to hide from the rest of the world. Right? So we come in here, we have our fancy stained glass windows so you can't see out, and you have big doors so you and they're hidden away at the back, so you, people don't want to come in because they're a bit scared. And we come in here, and all Christians do this, and we kind of retreat for a while from real life. And we come in here because it's really hard out there, so this is nice, mostly, because Christians are mostly nice. And so coming here allows us to escape for a while from the real difficulties of life, from the news, from the newspapers, uh, from family, from work, from uh, neighbors, friends, maybe even from our own loneliness and fear. We come to escape for a bit. Paul says, though, all of that stuff out there, God still cares about. We don't come in here as if somehow God is only bothered about what happens in here. 
We don't gather in a community because God only really likes the holy people who got out of bed this morning and came to church or turned on Facebook. Actually, actually, Paul says, all things were created by him. And he is reconciling all things to himself. That's quite a radical claim, all things. We like God to to pick some things. Because we deserve it more than other people, don't we? We've come to church, right? So you should get holiness points for that, right? Um, And we try to do what Jesus says. We say our prayers and read the Bible. Paul says, everything, everywhere you go, everyone you meet, every place you visit, whether it's a dive, a sink, a sink estate, whether it's a difficult work context, whether it's a horrible family situation, everywhere you go, Jesus is at work reconciling that situation, those people, that community to God. Jesus is at work everywhere you go reconciling those people that community, that situation, to God. And that's what Jesus' lordship looks like. That's what his supremacy looks like. That there is nobody, no place, no situation outside of his love and his care and his concern. There is nobody of whom he says, nah, not you. As many times as we might be tempted to, we might do that thing where we look at each other in church and think, blimey, they're hard work, aren't they? There's nobody, no thing, no place, no person outside of his work of reconciliation, of rejoining us, reconnecting us to God. That's the heartbeat of Jesus for everybody, every place, every person. So Paul quotes this hymn as if to say to them, I know the world you live in is hard work, but remember what you already know because you've been singing it and praying it every week in church together. All things were made by him, and it goes on, he is reconciling to himself all things, whether on heaven, sorry, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. And almost as if to say to those Christians, and just in case you don't believe me, he goes on, remember, you were once strangers who were hostile to God, and he's brought you in. So if he can do it for you, And you only have to look around even this austere company to know that God is a little bit tasteless. He will invite anybody in. So if he'll do it for you and me, he's on the prowl, seeking out everybody, anybody, welcoming them into his family, reconciling them to himself in Jesus. And so right in the middle of this little passage where Paul says, you're living in a context where you've been transferred into the kingdom of God's son. That means, folks, we live as if we were subjects of that kingdom's king. He sets the rules, he sets the direction of travel. He says, this is what it means to live as if I am your Lord. All things are within my remit. All things are caught up in the good news of Christ. Not some, but all. 
because he loves all. The task, therefore, is simple and hard work. It's simple because we have to trust him. Simple because Jesus says, this is it. You don't have to rethink the rules and imagine new parameters. Everybody is welcome. All things are within the work of God. All things are on Jesus' horizon. But that means you and I, if we're his disciples, his subjects, we live too like all things, everybody, every place is a place where he is at work. It's like we have to turn our inner antennae to be attentive to where God is in every circumstance, to what Jesus is doing in every situation, to ask ourselves, where are you, Lord, and what do you want of me today? Because if this is all churches gathering for one hour a week, then we've possibly missed the point that actually we gather around the Lord's table, around his word, to be resourced and sent out of this building to live for him, to live as subjects of the kingdom of God. So Anna's going to send us out at the end. It's a posh way of saying chuff off, but what it means is go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Why? Because we've been transferred into his kingdom, because all things were made for him and all things are subject to his kindness and his grace. And so we live as signs and witnesses of that. Just a moment. Hannah's going to come and play some music for us quietly. I want to create a little bit of space for us to listen to what the Holy Spirit might be saying to us collectively, but also individually. It might be that God uh, is asking you, Oi, pay attention. When you're out of this place, I'm, I'm doing loads of things. And I've got some stuff for you to get involved in. But pay attention. Look at, look at where I'm at work. And I'll show you. It might be that something has touched in your heart about a kind of a church on mission. A church that's sent out into its world. Into our parish. Into our communities. Just ask God to fill out that picture for you. What is it God might be saying to us at Christ Church about being that kind of church that... Actually, as we go out of this place, into work, into school, into the parish, into our neighborhoods, we've got some work to do. It might be that you just need to be reminded of that big vision today, as messy as the world we live in can often be. Actually, there is no place where God is not at work. There is no person who is beyond the remit of God's work, God's love, God's kindness. Just a few moments of quiet, some music will play. You feel prompted by the Spirit at any point to share anything. It might give you a picture or a word. Please just feel free to do that out loud. <laughs>